I know, right? You could bounce a quarter off someone's ass. I don't know. You, you could, you you could buy a train with ticket with that. I don't know. I, wow. Wait, what? I don't know. I'm going back to like you know the teens or something. Oh, I gotcha. Your okay. teens. You could buy a penny whistle. We had. A if penny, you had a penny, we had a penny whistle on the no, show. No, okay. What I'm saying is that you, what you did is worth that penny. In other words, it's, if it's you do what you did, you don't need the penny. No, back then the penny was a lot. Are you oh. kidding me? Fair. Listen, it's, it was still only a penny. Okay, fair enough, but, but well, that's at least a fifth of your train ticket, if you're taking the New York City subway as of 1904. I wish he would stop talking about his childhood. <laughs> he is, like, practically an 80-year-old. That was good. That was, uh, that was, Thank uh, you. Didn't expect that. Thank um, you. That was off the cuff. I was like, train? I'm just grateful to see that Steve has returned for another week of podcasting and he's not transformed into John. Because wait, I figured wait. after him becoming so into Weezer, he would just become another John. Hey, whoa, 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 whoa. That wasn't John that did that. I know. It was, it was probably James. the Weezer concert itself, which, First of all, which James okay. bought my ticket for, so I kind of owe him. And you said it wrong. It's whoa, whoa, whoa. Whoa, 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 whoa. Uh, esoteric reference. Episode 26. Outtakes episode. Look it up. Um, Enjoy it. It's one of the funnier ones. <laughs> timestamp? I'm not that good. <laughs> no, yeah. I don't know that you memorize the timestamps, too. That would be a little much. Uh, one oh. day. Um... <laughs> We have a week worth of podcasting to listen to. You memorize the timestamps? I swear to God, I'll put you through college again. <laughs> wow. I'll take this bet. It's on recording. I will take this it's bet. It's on recording. It is on recording. It's like, uh, uh, I'll buy your textbooks next semester if you beat Battletoads. That that was posed to me. Well, Battletoads was a really hard game. I got to do a uh, level 11. Whoa! Wow, that's, that's actually that's, that's solid. really good. No, that's pretty solid. <laughs> for someone who sucks at games, I'm very surprised. No, someone who just never plays games, oh, which well. is totally more awesome for me. Yeah, Steve never plays. You just suck. Uh, that's not true. Yeah, I, I play, better I play, than you at most games except shooters. That's the only competitive game out there. That's not true. There are fighting games which you suck at. That's partially true. <laughs> yeah. Uh huh. Um, There's music in this discussion somewhere, right? Yeah. We'll get back to it. Yeah, that's true. Um, by now, Time you've heard my, um, my conversation with Michael Kill. I hope you enjoyed it. You can check out his work on Bandcamp uh, is the best way to get it. Um, he's actually, I'm excited, he's selling cassettes for his newest record, which I thought is pretty neat, because I didn't know anybody sold cassettes at all. <laughs> Which was well, pretty cool. This is New York. There's a lot you, of cars. You sold me. Sure. No, you gave me a cassette that was yeah. Bill and Ted's Excellent yeah. Adventure soundtrack. Yeah. I what? discovered I can't play it. What? I don't have. I, it's <laughs> sitting there. I don't have it working. All of them have, are busted. Excellent. I don't even have a cassette well, player in my really car. Sucks. Otherwise, I would steal it from you and keep it in my car. I feel like I got to go black market for this. This is how sad it's gotten. Um, also, listening to this this week, keep an eye out. I believe Eric Neff, who we've talked about on the show before and who I will be interviewing later this month on Autographs, his new album drops this month. So keep an eye out for that because it's actually a really great record. Sometime this month. 
We'll keep you on top of it. Yeah, I don't really have the date. He, the funny thing is I was talking to Eric, and he didn't really know the date, so <laughs> I don't either. Sometime in November. Yay. Uh, um, but why don't we get started with why we're all here for our new record of this week. Yes. Death from Above, 1979, The Physical World. So, Death from Above, 1979 is the 2001 project of Sebastian Granger and Jesse Keeler. Now, two-person rock projects always kind of interest me. Because it usually makes for some pretty unique instrumentation, and we're gonna get on to that as we get to the topic. But this is just due to like personnel constraints. It often makes it kind of tricky because it, you could you have to trade out, say, a staple role of an instrument for a more intuitive reliance on, say, something less prominent. In this case, drums and bass. A great combo as it is, but now it is the whole gamut. The bass fronts the melody. That would be Jesse Killer, and Sebastian Granger is the drummer and primary vocalist. Drummer and primary vocalist, not a terribly common thing. Anyway, the duo is from Toronto, and would be most remembered for their solo LP released in 2004 called You're a Woman, I'm a Machine, which had hinted the levels of testosterone that we'll be reaching today. I know that as of its release, I personally fell in love with that album and found it irresistibly cathartic, but I was disappointed to find that the band dissolved the following year due to artistic differences. Needless to say, Everybody complained, and the two were practically stalked in the grounds of when and if they'd be reforming. So finally they caved for this decade-delayed release, The Physical World. Now, uh, just to you folks, a word on genre, if I may, because I know that we're going to get into the, our, our sonic impressions of this band. So, without getting too deep into song by song yet, how would you guys describe this genre, if you could? I mean... I alluded to it before. It had kind of an, um, a mix of Indian metal. I had said, and I was going to quote this during the first track, but I guess I'll quote it up front, that it feels like the White Stripes fell into a pool of metal and came out emerged this band. Because there's, there's a heavy influence of, of indie, but I sense metal bass and drum work very much so. I, that's a great origin story for the next superhero. Um, <laughs> metal... I, I, just from the name, you get metal. Only Death from above. I mean, that's going to put it out there. Ah, uh, yeah. With. I should have a little aside on the band's name, uh, just because it was requested, <laughs> and probably someone would be curious. Death from above, 1979. All I can answer is about half of that. 1979 is quite simply the birth date of, I believe, uh, Sebastian Granger. That's when he was born. Death from above. Well, obviously, you know, we tend to attribute a lot of importance to our date of birth. Uh, but it was falsely circulated for a while that it had come from the movie Apocalypse Now, which was released in 1979, and as everybody knows, Death from Above was written on the Black Hawk helicopter that went napalming through Vietnam. So, that's a coincidence. Great, nothing nothing great, more. Great scene in that movie. Yeah. Um, <laughs> the band, sonically, I put them in the realm of metal rock indie. There's not enough metal to offset the amount of rock that's in this album. Hmm. The, the combination of the two, there's just stylistic differences between the two that I have to put both those words together. And just from the standpoint of the just two instruments being used, conceptually, that already screams indie at me. It's implement, uh, how they implement it also screams indie. That's a good point. I'll, I'll, I'll cheat a little bit now and uh, just go to where they're billed as, and this is according to the highly suggestible Wikipedia research. <laughs> punk rock, dance punk, and noise rock. Now, I disagree with all three of these, and I think you laid some pretty good points uh, 
to, as to why that's the case. So, but I'm going to go out and throw out a genre of my own, and this crosses over with some of what you've said. This is if genres matter at all, but I think we've improved in many episodes that they do, at least for archival purposes. So here it is. Industrial indie rock. I made that's, it that's, you, I just, made it you just took the word metal and made it industrial. Pretty much. Uh, anyway, I, I say this is certainly punk-inspired, just, but just as I disclaimed in Weezer last week, uh, you know, I wouldn't say that they just fell ass backward into punk because of their melodic nature. Well, here, I can't get on board either because it's just too groovy for punk. It's not riddled with the same kind of attitude either, but it clearly still has attitude. It's just that there's something a little more predatorial about this, and maybe that goes back to that whole... Uh, testosterone thing that I mentioned just by, you know, their previous album being called Your Woman, I'm a Machine. Well, now this is called The Physical World, so it's still pretty testosterone-filled. Anyway, something predatorial is much in contrast to, say, punk's angst. I did make this argument just a couple weeks ago that funk, for instance, can sometimes broach the predatorial side of sexuality, and I would cite this album as another example to that effect. But now going into the industrial thing. I would only say that just because it's like punk with a much more metallic sound attached to it. And that's the thing I think that uh, people always go back to when they hear industrial is they think the sound that might reverberate, say, in an empty warehouse or an abandoned factory or something like that using metallic tools. And in this case, it's used solely by the bass amped up with a ridiculous uh, distorted effect. And that makes it sound especially metallic. Combine that with the drums, which still kind of sounds like it's got a reverb, a lot of reverb attached to it, then yeah, this this kind of I think does end up as something more industrial, less punk, but industrial side of indie. So there you go. Well, also industrial, I mean, takes takes a lot of pull from metal and from from the heavier rock, so it's not that hard to believe. Yeah, once you that. start getting into the realm of punk, industrial, metal. Maybe a little bit of grunge thrown in there. There's a lot of overlap in oh, stylistic that. choices. I definitely see the grunge for sure. Um, but then again, I also buy one thing, at least one thing that, that Wikipedian said, and it, it said dance punk. I at least see the dance portion of it, because there's a, there's a danceability in this music. I, I bought that in a heartbeat, and that's, I think, part of the catharsis that I felt in their original album. But I also think there's a certain accessibility, as you said, just to the chordal structure of this work, that indie rock in general is a pretty safe place to put this just under an umbrella. But that's more so because it borrows the tonalities of the time in which their debut work was originally released, 2004. So, I still hear it, but let's just see if those other factories keep fresh after a decade-long slumber. And uh, I think this is a great place to stop dancing around the album and jump right in. Segways. Um, so track one is Cheap Talk, and speaking of jumping right in, I, I, what I really like about this track is how heavy and quick it starts. There's no delay, there's no waiting, they just dive right into their sound You get here. drums, you get speed drums, you get fast, uh, intricate, but it, it's more of a technical level of, of intricacy as opposed to just choices of the actual uh, notes he's going to be hitting. Skillfully, right away, you're shown that. Well, uh, which one's on on drums? Oh, that would be uh, Sebastian. Sebastian Granger. 
He's got chops. He's got a lot of chops because those wrists would be breaking if they were anyone's but his. And not only that, uh, he's the drummer. Uh, sorry, he's the vocalist too. Yeah, and that's so, an amazing level of, of breathing to be able to do both at once. Yeah. That's, I'm sure that probably in studio work it may be separated, but as far as I know for live work, well, they, they just... He doesn't get a choice. Yeah, they just stick the microphone right up there. He's got a deal. Thanks. It's, it starts off... Cheap Talk does start off steady. And I think that's a word that a lot of times has negative connotations, but here I'm going to be using it as a positive through most of the album. Everything does hit high levels of energy, especially right off the bat. The bass, when it steps in, it steps in and it's steady. But it's not steady in the way where you're going to get bored too quickly. It's steady in the way where it, it creates a level that you're ready for. It You, you get there and you're going to stay there. You're going to feel this high energy. That's another thing that you're going to get right away. Not just the speed of what's going on, but the actual pitch of a lot of the instrumentation just promotes higher energy, just mm. promotes you really getting into it, to start bopping your head, to start moving. That's why I guess they throw dance punk in there. It's It promotes movement. Yeah, no, I buy that. And I well, think also that's sort of the fatherhood, I think, of indie in many ways, is they take that, that, that stage readiness of punk, and then they just, you know, tweak it. It's a little bit more friendlier. But the funny thing, though, is that I find that this traded out the... The friendliness for something else instead of going the punk route of attitude well I as I term it I think it just went more of an industrial route I just think it it focuses on that 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 metal grit but it still keeps it fairly danceable but otherwise this is everything I discussed so far as you said it's got the rapid drums the bass really sounds like metal on metal and at least I mean I admit that it's steady as you pointed out but it's, it's kind of got this power to it. The fact that it's thrashed on the first beat of every single measure here, it comes across kind of like a, just talking about the intro here, it comes across sort of like a, like a modern bell toll, like a red alert, say abandoned ship, air raid, lunchtime at the coal mine, any of these things. This is how the, the first four bars wait, of this wait, comes across. lunchtime at the coal mine? You know, and that little buzzer goes off and, and, and everybody... How many coal mines have you been to? I, I, I can infer. I believe he was one of the Peruvians trapped I knew within. someone who lived near an abandoned coal mine, which closed there you go. years prior. That's he's, pretty close, I think. He's, he's an expert now. That's right. Also, the thing about this song, and going back to what uh, Steve was saying about the song feeling very, them being able to get you moving it, having a danceable feeling is in the lyrics too I mean this song is very much a mating ritual song it's very much sex and passion and a one night stand kind of a song and like even with the first verse she uses her body to say things that she can't say I, and, but so do I I can't lie I could never really move that way it's, it's like I mean that first verse is about dancing about moving to the music and, and how what you say by doing it and, and I think it really ties into the rhythm of the song certainly and I mean the bass settles on upon a pretty good groove in this uh, in, in this verse section here and uh, it also functions as a form of dual ranging the bass's role because of course you think of a bass as the bass it takes the bass line and that's pretty much it but in this case it kind of needs to do what I would say sort of call the equivalent when people say three-handed piano where the piano has to take the bass and the mid-range and the high end and it accomplishes this by doing a sort of stride thing and the left hand goes back and forth between the bass and the mid-range. You encounter this a lot in, in stride or ragtime, that sort of thing. Well, this is sort of the same principle but just coming from the bass's perspective where it would normally be in the low end but now it needs to reach up and do these jumps way up to sort of the mid, there really is no high range to the bass, but you'd be surprised how high a bass can really get. And the effect 
is just tonally when when you use this this little strange uh, distorting routed that they have. It's 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 unique. It comes across as very full. And again, we'll talk that talk about that later when we get into uh, you're the not topic. really you're not really missing the guitar. If no. you're going to go with the classic setup no, you're of not. this sort of a band, you're not really missing the guitar. He does a lot of the things it, with the it bass. It sounds like a guitar in many instances. He does, and that's why I compare them to the White Stripes a bit, because Jack White did a ton of that in the White Stripes. There were a lot of moments where, even though they were drum and bass, you heard a ton of really great guitar work. I mean, some of the songs did actually have guitar, but he also did a lot of great guitar-ish work with his bass, and I hear a lot of that in this, too. Right, and and uh, another point I'm trying to make here is that what it, what it ends up doing, especially when... when he reaches that mid-range, it sort of comes across as comping for for the vocals themselves, for the vocal melody. So, you know, comping is not the kind of thing that you would otherwise expect from a two-person band, which basically is dealing with just two primary instruments. Maybe the synth, which does come in here and there. And uh, let's talk about the chorus, because that's, that's where we're going to bring that in here. Um, actually, no, before that, the pre-chorus, because this is very important. The pre-chorus is sort of where this particular track starts to really beef itself up. And the synth does step in, probably added in post, almost definitely has to be added in post, but it's frantic, absolutely frantic, and this, this marries itself pretty well to the pre-chorus lyrics. So listen, I go crazy, and that's sort of a, spoken in a wail here. The way she makes me, get on my knees, yeah, I'm begging please, yeah. This is not like high poetry. This is raw poetry. This is just flat out the musings of a person who needs something now, and that goes back to the testosterone that I've been preaching. Yeah. But that if you can turn, preach testosterone. <laughs> I, I, I run into issues when they go into the chorus. It feels, it feels like they're starting to separate the two segments of the songs. It does not marry very well for me to what the verses were doing. The sound change is, is a little bit too dramatic. This is something I'm going to have to disagree with you uh, fundamentally on. There are later moments in the song where you could argue, uh, excuse me, later in the album where you could argue something to that effect, but in this particular case, I'm going to just go ahead and not agree. I think, I think it's the kind of thing that, as far as their music style dictates, it can kind of, it can kind of jump on you all at once. Say, for instance, the things that I, that I noted as early as those first four bars. Things like, you know, an air raid, abandoned ship. This is the kind of, uh, this kind of sound effect that the bass is having on you. It can be a little bit jarring, I'd imagine, to certain audiences. But that aside, I think it takes a few times before you settle into this. Perhaps it's not an all-at-once kind of album. You really need to let it grow on you. If you let it do so, I believe it can grow to the same catharsis. At which point, these two sections are not are not divorced by any stretch. I think it's a natural evolution, and, and it makes the song a lot more interesting. Yeah, I don't feel that divorce either. I mean, I can I can sort of see where John's coming from, but I think he's hyper, it's, it's hyper-specific, and I think it's too focused. I think that there's enough connective pieces here that you can kind of go with it. Also, I, I rather appreciated the, the, the energy and the balls to do something a little bit more... I wouldn't... Again, I still can't even say drastically different, but balls to at least push the song forward so early in the game where other artists might otherwise just try to settle you into something familiar first. You know, I don't need that kind of coddling. Because what what I really like about this song... Oh, I'm just going to continue my statement because you flat out interrupted me, so I'm just going to continue. Oh, no, you may. <laughs> <laughs> oh, thank you for giving him permission. Um, what <laughs> Go I, ahead. What I really like also is this this marriage between those two pieces. What really ties it together is the 
lyrics. And while I'll admit I didn't really get the lyrics on a first or even a second listen, I like that, though. What I like about a lot of heavy metal and <laughs> rock like and punk is that you have to work to understand the song. And, and sometimes I enjoy doing that. It gives an extra level of analysis. I'll admit sometimes that's a little too much work for some people, which is fine too. I sometimes feel that way as well. But here I just feel like those shifts really reflect this kind of internal struggle that he's having. And clearly, you know, he's, this is, this is, this is, this is a moment on a dance club where two people who are very attracted to each other are flirting and trying to figure out where they fit. And it's mm. conveyed very strongly in the music, in the lyrics, and in the tonality of the singing. And I think it's a really great package. And I think that's the through line that connects the two parts is the singing and how it's sung. That's interesting. And the whole the frantic motion of this, this little tete-a-tete that they got going here, I think is also enhanced by the texture of the drums themselves. For instance, I already mentioned that it was enhanced by the, the frantic synth work, and the drums themselves get particularly frantic here. They are all over the texture table. Cowbell, I believe I heard. Considerable amount of cowbell during the course of this chorus, but it's got that, you know, alternate pitch as as any drummer would, of course, have a little stand that has such a thing on it and perhaps different pitched cowbells, not the one that we jokingly refer to when we're referring to SNL. But I was feeling, well, I loved the vocal range he was uh, he was hitting because the vocals throughout this whole album are, are solidly great. That's, I mean... Just up front, the vocals, the guitar, uh, not the guitar, the, the bass, and the drums are going to be something we're going to be harping on how good they are throughout the whole album. That's just what it is. But the lyrics here, because it's trying to explain to me a kind of a vapid idea of, of lust, they fall a little bit flat. I'm not seeing a whole lot of depth. Now, I don't think it needs too much depth, but I've seen this sort of idea of just two people trying to come together uh, of of trying to hit that level of primal passion I've seen it done better in this same sort of genre in this same sort of work here I just have I, to disagree I feel like the, 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 the reason the lyrics are so simplistic is because they're trying to uh, convey an almost frantic animalistic need for sex on both sides it's not like this is one sided someone stalking someone else It's it's you don't know who's the predator and who's the prey here the way the lyrics are constructed <laughs> The woman and the man are both very much having each other in their crosshairs. And I think the simplicity of the po poetry here is because you're not thinking, you're acting. And that's what they're trying to convey. I'd rather, that's a distractor for me. I dis Well, that's fine. And, saying, but I believe saying, that, that the poetry actually captures this within. And again, you may not find that in, for instance, the first verse, but there's other moments here where it kind of follows through when some things that that sort of hang in the balance as perhaps what could it be construed in as, as an empty line. For instance, in the first verse, you've got, you got that uh, she uses her body to say the things she can't say, but so do I. I can't lie. I could never, really, uh, could never really move that way. So even just that, I can't lie. Then we fast forward a little bit further to, I believe this is somewhere around the, the bridge here, everything you said, your body won't lie in bed which is kind of a little twist on that. It's not just the emptiness of, oh, you can't lie, you know, you won't lie, you really want me, but then all of a sudden it twists it around to do a little play on lying in bed. Perhaps I'm breaking down the obvious here, but it's something that I kind of appreciate within these lyrics that you could otherwise overlook, because frankly, I'm 100% with you, Matt. I'm not really looking for this. I'm looking for the drums, the bass, and the vocals that convey this without the lyrics even needing to be and there. And that's where it actually stands up. That's, that's, that's something I do want to harp in. For this, the vocals are spot on to actually emote 
without needing to say anything specific. It does compensate, maybe even more than compensate, for what I'm finding as lackluster in her lyrics. Uh, I, I felt what he was going for. I, maybe not as strongly as the two of you, but I did know what it was, what he was saying without even hearing what he was saying. Right. Look, I, can't, I can't force you to, to see the lyrics the same way we do. I understand your problem. I just don't get the same problem because I get what I need from everything else. Yeah, it's fair enough. And then also, I just have one more to say about this, because if we're going to hone in on melodies, I, I, would, I have to at least mention one little specific here. Something that keeps this, I think, sort of in, in, in that little entrance with the tete-a-tete the, the, the you mentioned, the, is, is the chorus itself. When he says, what he said, what she said, it doesn't really matter in the end. And the melodic motion here is really interesting, the way he breaks apart that word end and he breaks up into four different components what feels like they're almost throwing in like a flat five here although it could just be on a five but even so it's really more about the way it ends it just goes down to a two which feels so inconclusive like an, an inconclusive way to end a phrase but i absolutely love it for that exact reason there's something there's something so unfinished about this as if it's all process you never really culminate in the moment say of consummation it's all process yeah <laughs> That is a very, very interesting way of putting it. Well, I mean... I, even, like, the, I like that metaphor. It's not a metaphor at all. No, no, not no actually, no, here's a better thing. Because Matt, Matt put this uh, at some point earlier on. He used the word urgency. And I think that was to refer to a different song. But I rather liked that, that, that phrase because it encapsulates, I think, the entire tone throughout. So me saying that everything about this, this track is progress, progress, progress. It's really more that. It's really more urgency that it needs to get somewhere. It's not that the track is necessarily going for this progressive, or that is to say prog music motion. It's not going to end in, the, in this, all these different sections. Instead, it's just going to take you through the motions of this one exact moment, this one, this one moment between these two people and that's that's basically all they need to say and you feel the urgency of that snapshot in life it actually does build to a great ending for the song um that was the first time i really felt like they were doing uh, a more classic style build-up of the instrumentation as opposed to uh mood changing or speed changing or just technicality that was that was the most in endearing is the wrong word but it's a word i want to use <laughs> part of the whole album uh, not the whole album, the whole song, uh, because it felt, it felt less of taking an idea and running with it, and more at culminating with an idea. Um, I I actually didn't find so much of a focus on the end of the track, but that's one way to put it. Uh, anyway, this is the kind of album that uh, I mean we end up talking about so much about this first track here, but this is the kind of album that I think it it, it implores a lot of analysis just because their sound is is at at the front it's a little bit more shocking. You need to kind of let it sit for a while. And I think that's a good cue to move on to right on Frankenstein. The funny thing about about letting things sit though is that um, the majority of this album has two and three minute tracks. There's a four and a, two four and a half minute tracks later. I think one in the middle and one at the end, but mostly these tracks are pretty succinct. And that's the thing I think wrapping up on cheap talk is what I like best is that it hits a hard three minutes finishes and then we're right on to right on Frankenstein that captures urgency too why would you right. need to reiterate urgency how right. urgent could it be um, this this is a track that really rocks this is where we get into to a heavier sound we're, we're leaning more towards that metal sound this was a we're big, talking about this was a big change um, right away I'm seeing just just from my point of view, I'm seeing a lot more variation in the bass, in the texture that it's presenting and it's building, 
I feel like it's it's dragging itself to a new level. And I, I think that's a really fitting word for what this song's all about. It's it's a guy who feels like a zombie. I find it paralleling the idea and the, the content of the lyrics very, very closely to to just keep it subtle enough that the guitar will change a little bit of a phrasing here, a little bit of phrasing there, and eventually you'll see over 30 seconds that it's doing something completely different. I'm enamored with this. <laughs> I loved what they did here. Notice you said guitar. It's going to be a Freudian, guitar, Freudian slip gonna, throughout yeah, this entire podcast. But, but well, also, this one sounded a little I know, like a I, I, I need to interrupt you just to say that I, I kind of disagree up front again, because believe it or not, this song was a lot less engaging to me uh, than the first track. Um, but not, you not, you know, not horrifically so. I was not brought down by this track necessarily. It actually makes up for it in other ways. It makes up for it by just the sheer energy. This is a fast track. It's upwards of over 200 beats per minute. Um, and yet, to be honest, this is where I kind of sympathize a little more so than, than any other track in this album with that Wikipedia reference. This has got a lot more of a punk pacing to it. The one song, a song later on also has a very punk pacing, but also what I really like about this track as opposed to the first track, is you also get a more prominent sprinkling of those um, unique flavors of synth. You know, they're, they're here as effects, but they really support, I think, the framework of the song and keep it from becoming too overly repetitive by adding these little sprinkles here and there that give the song an extra character. Right, and that, that it's those little sprinkles, things like that, and even just the energy itself, you know, that keeps this track, I think, from feeling repetitive in any by any stretch um it's but, but it's just because that you honed in specifically on the bass that i found that particularly interesting because that's that's one of the most regular things i think about this track no, it it's was mostly slight, eighth notes it seemed the slight changing in what notes they were playing that that at such a fast speed because you're right yeah 200 beats per minute was it really that fast oh yeah i think i actually clocked it in at about 206 it was allowing it to very rapidly but subtly change its texture, change what actual notes it was playing. Even though it was keeping at such a, a fast speed, it kept the melody from falling apart on me, but allowed it to shift, allowed it to feel like it was actually evolving into something else, even when the framework seemed to be very samey, very, very similar. I admit I did like the melody here, although there were moments where I thought it was a little bit lackluster because I was in such an inverse uh, case we have right here, where I was more interested perhaps in the lyrics just because it said something so provocative. Oh, I love I don't want to die, but I want to be buried. Leave me at the gates of the cemetery. That, that, that's, that's curious. Well, I, wanted, I wanted to know exactly what, that, what he meant by that, and it made me a lot more... Uh, curious to, to read into these lyrics and do exactly what what you uh, talked about before, as many listeners do not do, is analyze lyrics while they're trying to rock out. Well, also, there's a thing here that, that I'm realizing with this song especially, is it's conveying a message that, I mean, comes up in other songs here and there, but he's really talking about a zombified existence, which we have in the modern age, either whether it's zomb zombified by our technology, by lack of sleep, Overstimulation, whatever it is, hmm. this, this idea of he feels like the undead and his lyrics start to unravel towards the end and make less sense as you go because of the state he's in. And I just think it's a really strong structure support too, right on Frankenstein. I really think also this kind of idea of it's a self cheering on, like he's referring to himself as a Frankenstein and, and you know, he's like right on Frankenstein, almost a self cheer, self inspiration to get out of this rut. 
It's it's an interesting take I like because it has double meanings on top of it. It could be a very personal take of something happened and now he's just dead inside or society is draining the life out of him or he can go so many different ways with it. And because of that, um, the, a lot of the content I was kind of missing in the first track, I'm really enjoying here. Even though it's really hard to hear the words. <laughs> well, it's more like the first track just captures everything they did in the, on, the, on their first album, which is, you know, again, highly sexualized. And, eh, you, know, it, you know, it's up to you as to how much you really want to read into it. I'll admit, this is this was pretty interesting, even though it's a, a pretty, it's pretty, it's pretty light metaphor. It's about as on point as it gets. Yes. I've been a zombie lately. I got nothing to say. Always talking too much. Not enough eating brains. It seems like it should be so straightforward, but considering everything you just said, Matt, I think that's... <laughs> I mean, what better... People say, oh, I'm feeling like a zombie all the time. But, you know, I never actually thought to go as far as, say, not enough eating brains, as in to apply, you know, you're not really thinking. Yeah. And or, that's, that's the or, identity of, of or, zombiehood. Or engaging in, in thought thoughtful conversations with others exactly eating others brains in that case um <laughs> yeah perfect yeah and and what i also really like about this track is how it kind of outros i think that it was much more unique you, you had said that the first track kind of fell apart at the end whereas this one has a nice unique and kind of we get more of that synth stuff in the outro i absolutely love the outro on this particular track in fact this is really what interested me most musically um first of all i find that just the whole tone here changes we start off the the whole track and it generally stays within c minor and then all of a sudden in this intro we just do this little flip mode mixture and just shift over to c major which i've talked about before whenever you're shifting the the the, the mode right on the key itself that parallel motion is always kind of interesting it, it, it reshapes the it reshapes the sound that you've otherwise been accustomed to without necessarily changing it, not changing the tonic. And this is really the chance I found where the bass does go off. And maybe this is the part that you were referring to, no, John, it, it if happens this really earlier. captured you. It happens earlier, but here his fingering becomes... There are a lot of interludes... Ma- his fingering becomes magical here. It depends on what you want to focus on. There are a lot of interlude flourishes in the earlier part of the track, and if that's what you're referring to, then maybe I could hop on board. I was thinking more in terms of just the verse content where the bass seemed to be more regular until this point where all of a sudden it is phenomenal. The, the, these, the, these sort of rapid 16 note triplets, you know, half the time of what you typically expect a, a triplet to be. And then within this, it kind of, it sort of hits the F sharp there, and then up to a G, it's kind of poking at Lydian within this. And then on the next chord, we go to F major, which is just fourth up, and here the triplets do the same exact thing, but they go from B to C, sometimes even D in this particular case. So you're kind of stacking Lydian on top of Lydian, where otherwise you've just been in minor, this is kind of odd. It's, 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 a, it's a curious way to end an otherwise static track uh, from from a from a theory standpoint, I think. Um, even though it had the energy going for it, I didn't expect this in this track. I actually thought this track was going to be a letdown. This kind of implies that the album is moving in, in, in somewhat more complex directions. Speaking of moving on, we will go to track three. Virgins. Um, what I really like about this track is you get you get so much more unique bass work. I mean, the instrumentation, even early on, you get a, hand, a ton more bass slides, and it's almost like the bass is even purring. Like, it, the, the rumble of the bass almost feels like a cat purring. But also what I really like about Virgins is this feels to me like this, this feels most, most punk in message. 
you know, it's very much, you know, oh, uh, this town is the death of us. You know, the, the society's beating down on us. We damn the man. It was a very <laughs> punk attitude. And I think that the people who are pointing out that it's punk may not necessarily always be in sound. It might be an attitude. And you really get a sense of that from the lyrics as well as the bass work in the very beginning of the track. Well, mm-hmm. lyrically, it's talking about two people trying to lose their virginity. And everybody has been there unless you're a truly celibate individual. The the point of view that they're presenting here is very 80s, so it's along the lines of punk itself. Just yeah. the idea of trying to find a place where you can get away from your parents. I like it. This These words make me laugh and smirk a little. Just, you know, nostalgia reasons and all that sort of stuff. Um, it's not adding to writing in, in the grand scheme of things, but... From this point of view, I love its cheeky nature. It's it's clever. It's clever writing, and also what I like is we're getting a lot more intricate beat work in this song that punctuates the verses very well, and I think that's what gives the impact and the emotionality of the verses is that punctuating beat work that goes with the verses being sung. And that's, that punctuation is a lot heavier than we've previously gotten. Mm-hmm. So again, we're kind of moving. <laughs> they're moving the texture of this album into a much deeper direction. It's not quite as lighthearted. Not to say that the first two tracks were really that lighthearted, but this is this is really more in line of what I what I was what is expecting from them I expect them to basically continuously to get their sound getting more and more intense as they go along because this is exactly what their debut album did um depending upon how you see that intensity and a lot of that is usually just the bass itself and how much grit they choose to add to it so in this particular case you have that opening riff and that persists right throughout the opening verse too then there's a really drastic shift after this and that's where the punctuation occurs. The punctuation is just singular, beginning, uh, every single beat on the beat. And this is kind of what I love about them, because it, it makes these draft, drastic shifts seem a lot more impactful, even though there's, by all intents and purposes, simpler stuff going on. I mean, that's a pretty easy thing to do. Play on the beat, right? Can we all agree on this? Yes. Yeah, okay. There you yeah, go. We, we, we didn't want to interrupt. Oh, I fair enough. I thought, I didn't know there was a call and response. I didn't know I had to pay attention. There was I really forgot no, my homework. There was really no reason to. In uh, any case, so it's a simpler thing to do, but strangely enough, this was the most impactful moment for this album so far. It goes to show that complexity, complexity is not always the thing that really beefs up your album uh, or beefs up your song material. It's just, it, it takes, I think, to be honest, it takes some really good songwriting in order to do that. When you construct the sections of your track uh, such that the more simpler thing is going to be more impactful. Well, I also think that this is a great direction for the album to be going because we're building as we go, which, you know, some albums haven't been doing lately. And, and so I the- like the, the fact that it's growing as it goes. But what I also want to point out is this song doesn't actually have a chorus. This song is all verses. There's no chorus. There are, That's exactly what I was getting to. There, there, was, it, there are moments that feel chorus-like because the punctuation repeats. So it gives you the idea of that's the verse, so the other stuff must be the chorus, but it's actually not. And that's, I think, also what makes it kind of punk, is the fact that they, they just do verse after verse after verse. And it's almost like instead of having a musical A section, B section, we're having a lyrical vocal A section, B section. It's a, it's a little bit of a turn on the head of what you would think it is a composition musically, but because of just the differences that they're placing within it, the framework that they're doing with their instruments, with their beat work, with just how their presentation makes the two sections feel like just just different heads of the same beast. Well, let's break that down then. Coming from G minor, 
This is what the opening section is, however you consider it verse or chorus. And then it sort of breaks out with the four chord. Well, that's always powerful in just about anything you do. The four chord is, is, is usually a pretty good choice. But it's that sparse, the, the sparse thrash here that kind of lets the melody breathe in this section. So it's, it's still sort of supporting, supported by that driving force. But then we go into the next chains. In other words, we go back to the previous section, which, you know, basically the same deal that you heard the first time. And then we go back into the next thing. This is not just the four chord. Now all of a sudden, it's the five chord. It's a D instead of a C here. So fifth instead of the fourth. Simple tricks, but here the context kind of ties this together because the song structure is so odd at the moment. I mean, as you just pointed out, this is not really a chorus. It's sort of more of a B prime. It's the B section returning as just a slight little difference from the first. Right, and also, I mean, shortly after that, we, we get to a point where the percussion really takes off. We get some astonishing drum work that just kind of feels... It, it, it's more scattered, but it's, it's, it, it adds a rhythm that kind of really drives the song. And this, I, I wrote it as a powerful chorus, but it's not. It's more verse work that gets more powerful because of the way the drums evolve at this point in the song, too. Well, it's because it's not just a standard A section, B sections. They're influencing themselves, especially towards the end of the song. It, it becomes a, a fusion of the two different ideas, which shows that they were so similar because, like, I had my complaint about A in Cheap Talk, not quite feeling the same. I could not actually divorce the two sections in this song. The A prime, the B prime. I, the, the fusion was there. It just, it wasn't until the end that I actually saw the two pieces melding so well together. Well, it's because of the linear effect of it. You know, I had the same experience here as I, as I, uh, experience back in Godsticks when we reviewed that back in episode 51 when we went through the Advisions conundrum there were many songs there where I didn't really I didn't really attempt to sort of see these these sections in terms of verse and chorus because very much it was just the story moving itself along under, under its own power and I think that kind of speaks to what you're talking about but there was something here that I could define as as definably different and that was sort of a, a C section which incidentally is in C minor which introduces a, a new riff and here, the drums are a lot more punchier. It also makes use of another thing, just as we got the cowbell before. Well, we're all across the texture board here by introducing tambourine. Um, again, just subtle changes, but it's it's still wildly new in, in your experience through this song. Instead of being a solid riff at like the A section was, instead of being that heavy punctuation, this one had more of an ebb and flow between the low range and the high range. Um, also playing around, so you weren't just rising and falling. Yeah. You rose a little bit, dropped back down, and came to the top of the mountain, and hit your valley, but kept going down in peaks. The combination of, of that bass actually just texturally not deciding to actually go up and down the scales, but to stutter and start and stop <laughs> was a lot of fun. Just a lot of fun, and wasn't separate but this section itself I felt like could have gone either way it did fit within the framework of the song itself but by itself it could have been a song I think it's like you put it before it's more of like the it's more of like the the, the period at the end of the sentence it sort of encapsulates the previous two sections but no it doesn't it, it doesn't really I don't think the period is the good way to put it because it, it's not really concluding anything instead it just seems to sum it up it's a parenthesis I don't know it's it's because it's not quite the beginning not quite the end it's just it's a cliff notes there you go 
hell. Or a footnote or a post A reference that people born in the 90s probably won't get. Anyway. Some people still use them. But um, But, uh, there is one other thing here that I think shouldn't be overlooked, and that's their vocals. The vocals is something that we've kind of been leaving out in this particular track, and I think they're they're propelling themselves further and further along into... into something of something of a mystical value here they they go through these various spells where they step in up into this this ridiculous falsetto and they harmonize together even if it's just for uh, a span of perhaps two seconds sometimes they could be in thirds sometimes they could be in sixths uh it's actually kind of hard to tell because the backup vocalist kind of sings very lowly or he's mixed very low you mainly hear the primary vocalist but it's clear that there are two people singing at that moment and it comes across as very as very chilling, I think, just because of the fact that, that they're in such odd falsetto and the inflection has this, this quiver to it as they taper off. Well, yeah, the inflection is definitely the strength of this, this, this singer. I mean, uh, he has other chops as well, but that's really the thing that sells it. And I think that's why I even felt like it was a chorus at first before I looked at the lyrics, because what? they sing similarly in style from verse to verse, conveying this emotion of a chorus even though it's not. One, one moment here that they, they do the same thing. Again, I believe it's in thirds. It could be in sixths. I didn't, I didn't listen that closely, but it was that line from the, uh, let's call it the, I think it's the B prime, and this was that there's nothing sacred to me. And right at this moment, all of a sudden, they just seem to, they, it, they're so tight. I, just as far as just rock music terms are concerned, this is a tight ensemble, even if they were just playing a cappella which I could actually imagine, considering them. And the line, there's nothing sacred to me, I love how it's followed up with, I lost it in the backseat. I yeah. love that. That's that cheeky nature. That's what keeps it from being a magnum opus, serious, oh my god, I can't believe this song, and becomes more of the realm of, oh, that's great, I love it because it well, feels it truer. It, it feels truer, more honest, and it gives it character. And also, one more thing that you mentioned, uh, John, when you were talking earlier on about the, the flow of this song. I mean, granted, there is a continuity to this, but you experience it that you have to kind of reel back before you understand how the sections go together. And I think I had the same exact experience here, because frankly, we're talking about this all elusively as if there's not really any bridge, chorus, bridge. But I believe there is. I believe you could define this as a sort of chorus verse, chorus verse, bridge, chorus, which doesn't seem like it's that odd, but it just goes to show you how when good songwriting sort of enters in, then, you know what, you don't really notice that stuff too much. You just notice a story. And I think this is what a lot more songwriters need to tap into, rather than the big reveal of, say, the next verse or the next chorus. It's it's something that follows form, but is just chillingly different, and it's, it's chillingly different by being just slightly different. That's it. Um... Would you like to take us on to track four, Always On? Lenny Kravitz showed up. This was something, I was writing it down when I believe Storm said it aloud as we're listening to it. This was a another different another difference on this album. They keep coming up with new ideas. It had a very classic rock style intro, but, but it did also be very reminiscent of what Lenny Kravitz did make popular in the 90s this kind of modern rock sound, you know, heavy guitar, which is funny because this is driven by bass, but the bass is at a place in this track where it sounds very guitar-like, very rooted in that 90s sound. And it, I think it really kind of gives this kind of classic rock feel overall. I noticed the classic rock. I also noticed something else. Uh, later in the chorus, vocals seem to reflect the inflections of yes. 
just a bit. Okay. Perhaps I, I perhaps I mean at any point you could hear the falsetto and say, well, okay, in some sense that perhaps goes back to yes. But I heard it in this track, and maybe it's just because of the classic rock sound. Well, I mean, also the lyrics feel very classic rock. I mean, innocence is fading because we see it here too much. Everyone you know around you always keep in touch. The the, the banter and flow kind of feels like a very old older rock and roll song. And I think that's a, a solid conveyance, too. Plus, the lead singer's voice, he really does have an inflection of, like, a either 90s alternative kind of gravelly singer or even further back than that, some of the older rock and roll gravelly singers. He's not quite at the range of Osborne, but when he hits those high heights, he can almost approach what Ozzy does. He doesn't have the, 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 the like you said, gravel of a true grunge, but... He can get really close. He's in a, a nice little area right there. There's a lot of crossover, and it's also his inflection really sells it more than the voice itself. That's why I felt Shades of Ozzy more because of how he was singing than what his exact range or level. The reason we notice here because this is a really vocal-heavy song. This is the kind of track that uh, I think puts a lot more emphasis on melody than many of the previous tracks. I think in those cases, you're very often waiting for the next riff or the next punchy section shift. In this particular case, you're kind of getting a little bit of what you got in the last track. I find that there's a lot of seamless uh, seamlessness between the verse and the choruses here. Um, it's just another continuation of the story, but it, it really is more important is, is the melodies themselves. Um, I, I th I'd rather read a little more of this. If we bought, brought Kurt back to life, there's no way he could survive. No way, not a day. I've been losing sleep just keeping up with what's become, reaching out for someone else when all I want is love. I want to maybe say that the reference is Kurt Vonnegut, but I'm not entirely sure. Really? And see, or, my brain went to Kurt Cobain. I like the Could fact be. That, 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 Could be. that those were the two Kurts you went to, because both those Kurts are very good Kurts. It can be I, I may be it more with be Matt either. now. I didn't consider Cobain, mm, but, you know. Vonnegut may not be too far off, only because of the esoteric darkness that Vonnegut likes to put in all the things yeah, that he but, did. Yeah, but, but Kurt was uh. pretty dark, too. I mean, but also the thing is, and, and, you know, it talks about how a lot of people mentioned that Kurt Cobain, in the era that he existed in that early 90s, like, his short lifespan, if he were to fl flounder around in the 2000s or post-2000s, it would be very difficult for a person like him, especially with all the demons that he had. That said, though, I think that this song really, the idea of always on... This idea that you're always on, you're always this putting out this front, this character, this person to people so they can see it, is a thing that actually comes up a lot in the entertainment business. And I think it's interesting to have someone singing about it, this idea of always having to be on and not hiding away and not having time to yourself and always being playing a role almost. Mm. But having the vocals and lyrics so supported by the melody... Uh, meant that for me the melody got stale and it got stale kind of quick hmm. Oh, just to jump back really quick though I think the reason why Steve might be right in agreeing with me that it is Kurt Cobain though is because people <laughs> say that one of the things that drove him to kill himself was the fact that he couldn't be always on being in the spotlight drove him to that point of insanity which is why I think he's referring to him Touche Me right in agreeing with you how yeah. humble of you <laughs> My pleasure Touche and back to my point uh it's, a, it's another instance of the speed picking, amazing, 
but the bass is less than stellar. The the drums seem to carry it more for me than anything else. Well, the drums were an impressive, impressive place, but I, I would agree that with Steve, the vocals were kind of the focus. But what I really love musically about this song is, though it has that kind of classic rock framework, the howling singing that he does in this track, along with the drum work at the end, really adds this kind of climactic finish to the song. Even before that, there are climactic moments. That's why I really can't understand why you wouldn't put emphasis in the melody here, although I may argue that it's more of the frills within the melody because you could argue that the melody sort of has this core line where just the barest minimum of notes need to be said in order for you to call it a melody for instance if this was like a, a piece of classical music and all of a sudden you just wrote this little bar above the above the phrase that has this little like run with like 13 different notes in there you could call that optional well, I think there's something equivalent here in terms of some of the, the, the frills that he uses with his inflection. You could call it optional, but that's, that's the icing. That's what really makes this tie itself together. So in which case, I'm focused on that. If you want to consider it part of the melody, sure. But I think it is. Um, but then there's other things here. For instance, he hits like these sevenths that are just absolutely thrilling when he hits them, uh, particularly that's in the C section. And then to go to your point, the final outro, this was this was unbelievable as far as I was concerned because uh, you refer to it as sort of a, a wailing or howling in the mm -hmm. background, which is an interesting way to put it because it occurs, I, I, almost, I almost interpreted it as, as somewhere between a synth and a vocal, or it's a very heavily synthesized vocal technique that's being sort of uh, thrown back in there in post. It's, it's, it's really unclear as to what it is. It's more important to how it relates to um, into how it relates with the bass in this particular section. Because otherwise, you know, we're go first of all, we, we go into um, F major. And then you have another case of that little mode mixture where you shift up things, you turn into an F minor. And then you throw in a seventh here, this time with the synth. And that kind of clashes with the third that was originally on uh, on the bass. So the synth clashes with the bass in these moments, and it creates this this interesting little. Uh, it's it's sort of a dance between the two notes at the very end of the song. I've noticed they like to do this, where the song is the song, and then all of a sudden it concludes with some sort of song within the song, a kind of thing that could exist independently or could be a uh, a, a, a sort of a front for a brand new idea that perhaps they choose only to use as a conclusion to a previous idea. They're, it's not to say that they're divorced, but it, 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 it's, it's sort of furthering your imagination, if that makes any sense. And I like bands that do that. I agree. I think that, that it also was a tight and, and very unique way to wrap up the song as well. Mm -hmm. um, and was a great lead into Crystal Ball, which is our fifth track on the record. Now, this is where they shift a little bit back from rock and roll and even metal and kind of go to a more indie sound here. It's I would, very... Uh, not too far. Not too far, but it's more reminiscent of the heavier indie bands from the 2000s. You know, your Vines, your Hives, I your heard of, I heard a bit of Killers. Uh, I heard a lot of bit of Killers, especially from their first the, album. And this those... one, as if they were darker. Well, all of those bands, when they first, well, the, the, the Vines and Killers and, and the Hives were, were much darker than the Killers, but, but they all had a similar sound at that time when they came. Um, but, you know, what I think really shines here, though, is that, that urgency is so apparent in the song. I mean, it had been apparent till this point, but this is where it's really in your face. And beyond that, I really love the chorus work in this song. The verses are great, but the chorus work is what really shines in this track. I think vocally, instrumentally, Melody-wise, rhythm-wise, the whole shebang. You know, I see urgency in the lyrics, but the funny thing is that when it came to music, I found this to be a much lighter side of them. I found it 
to go much more back to indie, which I said is sort of the core of what they're doing. It still fits very much within that 2000 sound. So when you said killers, I think that's right on the money. Um, but that also implies a little bit less urgency than I think when they go a little bit grittier, a little bit more industrial, a little bit more metal. That's really where I find more urgency just from the just from the uh, the the sonic effect of it. Here, I actually found it a lot more funkier i mean yes the synth, I, I totally hear that it, it's it's much funkier than the rest of this album i think but even though there's you know again there's still that overlying danceable nature that they have but it's pretty much the best of what i like about the killers in that instance because the killers could get kind of funky when i think about uh songs like midnight show sort of funky in its way in that yeah. indie way but still light-hearted so yeah you know and what i really like is the lyrics in this as well i mean the this is towards the latter part of the song. This song does have a verse chord structure, and it's one of the latter verses. It's not in the cards. There's no crystal ball. There's no way to predict who will take it all. Can can always have what you want. You know it's for the try. I see you getting turned on. I know the reasons why. <laughs> like this this kind of rhythm of the the verse work is, I think, what really kind of ha- helps those brighter courses explode. I think that. That give and take, that tete-a-tete, as John likes to say, really works for the track. Hey, this time I said it, actually. Tons of words are going. He said it once upon a time, but that was way back. But But um, I have an issue, and that's... You have these great parts with great inflection, but uh, those parts you're talking about, those those longer verses, I guess they're verses. Yeah, they are. uh, They kind of feel a little bit safe. They they feel like it's sort of plateaued here. Because what the courses are doing is actually really, really intricate, but it, it draws back. I think it goes back a little bit too far to, to, to a, to a uh, less complicated place. I don't know. I find that this is actually something that, that comes back a lot when you're referring to indie music, period. Indie rock is generally something where you either like the verse or the chorus... Not all the time. They don't always go together. They don't. You're usually waiting through one to get to the other. You probably are going to have a preference, uh, and I think that's kind of the experience that maybe you're I'm having getting... throughout this entire album. Yeah, I, you know what? That that kind of sums it up. Yeah, one part's ever... great. One part's just okay. One part, you're just sort of there, the yeah. that... watching the timestamp go along. The thing I like about this band, though, is that even though you know we get this 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 idea from the verse and the chorus and sometimes it feels like we're waiting for one or the other none of the songs stick around long enough that you can really get that upset about it it moves moves well enough and you get through the song well enough that even if you're not so happy with part a well don't wait too long because here's part b and then you can enjoy that instead i'd still argue there are things here in this track that um would grapple you no matter what for instance harmonies phenomenal although it's true that does occur in in the uh in, in the choruses themselves, the the harmonies, especially on just that moment where he says, oh, within, uh, if my heart bruises, everybody loses, oh, you gotta believe me. And again, just as he broke up uh, the earlier word before, while well, he's breaking up this word, oh, into four different parts. And it's, 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 there's something chilling in the way that he takes these singular words that otherwise would have absolutely no meaning whatsoever, and he makes that the singular focus. It, it's a it's a common tactic I guess any songwriter would generally have, but for some reason here, it is it is hitting it so much harder than just about any other indie band that I can think of at the moment back in that era. Yeah, no, I would agree. Back in their era of mid-2000s, because they've been on a little bit of a slumber. No, there's definitely a time capsule-esque kind of yeah. feel to this to a point. Um, I, I do like, though, in the verses also how the, the bass and rhythm work kind of is almost hypnotic, and that's what kind of keeps you coming back for it is that kind of moves you along as it's almost hypnotic. 
Uh, actually, it is quite hypnotic, actually, and it's not even almost in any stride. <laughs> Way to go back and just... It, well, it, um, hypn- it hypnotizes him into saying that. There you go. Another thing is uh, solo work here. Now, I noticed you mentioned earlier, John, that their solo work is it's debatable or whether it's even really, there at all. You yeah, know? not really solo, but we do get one here. In this one, we do. This track, we do. We get a solo. It's distinctly a solo, I would say, until I realize they repeated it through the next verse. So guess what? I right. still didn't get one. No, it's not really a solo. But it, it, here's the thing. They created such a phrase that is so intricate that you interpret it as a solo until you realize that that solo is the riff itself. That's pretty cool. No, it, it, it is a great idea. That's actually one. I rather from, enjoyed that. Going personally. from last week, I, that's one of the things I actually was touting about Weezer is that when they do a solo, they take parts of that solo and intersperse it. Here they're going even further. They're reinventing a lot of the melodies with a quote solo that isn't that. That isn't in any way, shape, or form supposed to be just an expose of a masturbatory guitar or anything like that. No, it's going to be the new through line. Yeah, and actually they're following suit here by doing it in the same exact moment that they've done it in various other tracks, which is to uh, do their 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 curious eyebrow-raising C-section, and yeah. this is uh, the point of what they do, it. and I'm not talking about, you know, you know, having babies. <laughs> oh, C-section. I, yes. It took a second. Yes. Um, yeah, but that, that C-section, as has in the previous songs, had been an interesting way to move on to the next track. I really like that they wrap up tracks using these intricate and unique C-sections that kind of they, they wrap like to it leave up. You, it's, they leave you on something new. That's still familiar, and then go into something completely different. It sounds like such simplistic terms of breaking this down, because you'd think that's what a bridge is supposed to do, period. But in some way, it it doesn't sound gimmicky here. No. I, that, that's, that's, I think, the thing I'm trying to really get across, because otherwise I'm just trying to get across pop music structure. Well, that's sort of what a bridge is supposed to do. Either that or it's supposed to, of course, tie the two together and overuse something else in the end. But in this particular case, it, it's sort of reinventing the song and it makes the repetition that is otherwise there, still otherwise intricate repetition, sound far less repetitive. It's always reinventing itself as it moves along and it always keeps you dancing. It will not let you stop. It refuses. It's against your will. I don't know. I don't know where it's going. It back. hypnotized you, so that was probably against your will. Could be. On to White is Red, track six. This is one of my favorite tracks on this album. And Best intro thus far. Yeah. Nothing. I don't think anything really comes... Well, the reason for that is, of course, it's doing... I mean, this is the first track where the whole tone is discernibly different from everything else we do. Yep. It's groovy instead it's, of energetic. It it's, starts with the kind of even whole, a hopeful sound. Like, you get an emotionality from the moment the song starts. It's, there's no lead-up, there's no shift, there's no fast pace, there's no searching for an emotion. You kind of really get it from right out of the gates. And it's the way this, this song is structured a little differently from others. Right, and I gotta go back, and I think that you're much more on point here, because, John, I gotta disagree with you with the word groovy. That's not what I got in the beginning of this track. I interpret this as much more warmer than anything else they've done. Um, It's more of a 90s grunge sound, no shortage of that recently. The bass tone is brighter, it's fuller, the vocals are crisper, a lot less noise, less distortion. It struck me as a little bit odd at first, until the chorus sort of revealed this strange blend of both styles, styles, and and it came across perfectly. I mean, this is not the courtesy track, the courtesy light-hearted track. It's done in only the way the Death From Above 1979 can do it. Well, the the reason I would say groovier is just the drums are playing at one-third, one-quarter speed. They're steady as opposed to present. 
the the base instead of uh, his fingering is now more specific. He's sauntering up and down the strings as opposed to rapidly plucking them. That's well, yeah. I wouldn't call it a funky groove by any stretch, but for this album, it's it feels like they're now. I think that's saunter. Into it. The saunter came across as as very romantic, kind of longing, even less less pure testosterone again as we've been having. Yeah, and what I also really like though is this song from from we're we're obviously talking about the verse at this point. It really when it goes into the chorus, kind of dives into this more eighty sound, which is an interesting transition from this kind of grungy verse that we were getting as the song started. But as the chorus come, we get this kind of 80s sound that, that, that again, there's not there's a lot less transition. And I think that's more where the groove that John's talking about comes in. That occurs in sort of these interludes, and that that's where the, the synth sort of steps in full force, and yeah. you kind of do get this sort of 80s-ish sound, which I, I don't know. It, it's, 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 not a, it's, it's not a brand new sound, I don't think, because as far as the previous track was concerned, you know, you got a little bit of that killer's influence, and face it the killers were all over the 80s synth in in much of their work especially on hot fuss yeah but here here you get almost like a three-part song going on because once you get past this saunter as i'm calling it you get you get a pickup but surprisingly this pickup in speed and tempo does not detract from the feeling it was building yeah the bridge is is, is kind of deliberate and amidst this the melody itself feels like it has a life of its own. It doesn't really need like the fanciness to 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 fill it out, but it is colored by one thing, and that's sort of this distant wailing of a guitar. It does this time. I really am going to call it. I think it does sound like a guitar in the background, and it very well could be that one of them plays guitar too and added that in post. But who knows? And that's as that's part of the part one of the chorus because this chorus is a little it's bit curious like a two-part chorus. It's, it's kind of a two-part because after why don't you leave me she asked that night i said i see i don't know the i didn't know the kid is mine i'll never leave you it isn't right let's stay together until the end of time you got one thing going on here Duh. and then in the part two of the chorus the sound changes once again now you have oh now the white is red can't get it out of my head Oh, now the white is red. And it's a big tonal shift. Mm. I think it's showing this conflict because clearly this has something to do with an evolving relationship, at least to say the least. And I think that the the shift in the chorus work is to, sh- the, is to reflect the emotional shift that the song goes through. And what's great is when they come back to the B chorus later on, it's not the same. That's one of, was one of my favorite parts. When they get back into the line, Oh, now the white is red. It's blending the previous two almost sections that they have going for this song. Mm-hmm. And because of this blend with the really out there alteration they did, I'm, it became my favorite song, at least up until this point, right away. Just just by doing that. Just by really reinventing a, a, something that was already really enticing. Well, I think yeah. also that the, the, the chorus is... Not just like a two-part chorus. I think it's more of an evolving chorus, a progressing chorus. Because, you know, it's common that a lot of musicians just repeat the same chorus over and over again. But as we were talking about Schaefer the Dark Lord very recently, what I like about a lot of his songs is that the choruses aren't the same. They're similar, and the inflection is the same. But the words are actually different. They progress and they evolve. And I think that's what I really like about this song also, is the choruses do do that in those individual parts. In this case, the words are the same. (laughs) Yeah, but the music evolves. But the music progresses instead, which is an interesting take on it. 
Yeah, I mean, this is the kind of tra- it's funny because this is another one of those tracks where I, I sort of just want to like let the story whisk me along. And it's also, I mean, it is my favorite song up until this point, but I'm hesitant to say anything like, oh, it's because it changed up the tone that I was getting otherwise so familiar with. Because I was loving that. I absolutely love the, 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 the root tone that they have invented as far as I'm concerned um, as of their first album which they are picking exactly up where they left off in this album and I've been loving it up until here it's so it's not really that this this song you know blew me away by just offering something a little bit lighter a little bit brighter it's just the fact that I guess they, they, they managed to introduce another element here and that is that that slight little romance that that longing factor I think it didn't matter how they did that tonally I'm just happy that they did it no, I think that's actually a great way to put it. Um, they don't stay in the tone too long. And when we move on to track seven, Trainwreck 1979, which curiously has that date that's also in the name of the band, um, this is the first track we get on the whole record that really builds from the beginning. A lot of these songs jump right in. They are not an evolving... They evolve in the song, but they don't evolve in the intros. This yeah. is a song where we actually get a sound that builds as it starts. This is something with a definite exposition. Yes. Uh, and, and you, you find this in the otherwise. There's steady... It's the very steady intro, but the drum accents are what really fills this out. And it, It's not just like... The drums themselves are steady, but within this you will have these signature accents where the drums will fall really heavily on and it's this very rounded very thunderous accent it's not just something light to you know give you context in, the, in, in your measure it gives the whole exposition context and then suddenly out of that this much brighter falsetto just glistening with this ooh in the background with the piano in the background also it, it's it's very full well, yeah, but that, that rounded sound that you're talking about gives it this feel of this kind of mechanical, almost train-slash-train-wreck sound. It's, it, it, it's it is train, a train beat that is also synonymous with a heartbeat. I mean, yeah. it's, it's one and the same because it's not just about a train wreck or a train itself. It's also about when he was born. I was born on the highway in a train wreck <laughs> with a heart that was beating out of my chest. So now if I follow it around the world, I can't keep up. If I don't get it soon, I know I'll bleed until I drop. That's not, you know, talking about a train or a train wreck, but it's making the allusions through the music to one thing, through the lyrics to another, and the voice is marrying it all together. But, but, there's something that happens directly after what I just said. Because I want it all, I can't get enough. Because I want it all, I can't get enough. It goes, and it's going to do something that I probably will never describe again, industrial pop. Yeah, it has a very hard pop shift at that point. The choruses lean more towards that, which was an interesting shift for this song and completely unexpected, honestly. Well, it's also that, I mean, if you're using the, the whole train wreck here as this, as this, this, this metaphor. Um, if his life or an actual train wreck is, you know, kind of erratic and crazy, that's the kind of thing they're trying to convey with this shift. Exactly, and these shifts occur in, 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 in two iterations. One is the first one that I mentioned with this, the, the brighter falsetto. Um, and you do hear the piano with that, but the funny thing is the piano is accompanying the falsetto at that moment. And then, you know, you get the verse back, so it's a little bit more familiar here, and then all of a sudden you get the next train wreck. And these occur really suddenly. This is, I mean, as far as referring to divorced sections, this, this track exhibits it more than any other track, I think. But, again, it's not, this is clearly intentional because of that exact thing. He wants to jar you here. That is clearly the point from the get-go. And in this particular case, 
you get the piano with nothing else. It's just the piano, and it is mixed a lot louder than the previous case. It's also a very distorted piano. It's 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 peaking. It's 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 off the charts. And this is exactly the kind of piano that I wanted from Death from Above 1979. It's the, the kind of piano that only they could do. This is not the uh, not the empty auditorium with a little spinet. This is this is in your face. This is falling from a plane playing a piano at the same time. Yes, Death from Above. <laughs> exactly. With explosions. With explosions. But I was not a big fan of it. I know that he was going for jarring. For me, it was a little bit too much. It broke the theme of what was being built in the verses. Oh, I, I gotta it, disagree. I think I, this was great. It was brilliant single work. I it, mean, as far as it could be released as a single. I, I, it, it accomplished what he was going for, but it just broke the spell. I, I, I couldn't get back into it the same way. When they brought it back in the second time, and later on, it felt much more married, the two sections together. But that especially that first chorus, I, I just I can't get on board with The it. first chorus was just a giant question mark for you. Yeah, big time. Big mm-hmm. time. It's a, it was a bold choice. I'm going to agree with that. But eh, I think it's the kind of thing that when you when you experience it the second time, and especially if you're reading into this, this, this plot here, then it kind of makes sense. And let's face it, it woke me up. Even amidst the exposition that I was otherwise loving, I, I, I don't know. I was curious to see them do something drastic. Because, again, most of this album is in your face anyway, so it was nice to see them do that on a, from a sectional standpoint. Um, also, if we're just talking about the chorus itself, if you just take the chorus for the chorus, that line, because I, I want it all, I can't get enough, I mean, the, the energy within this, it, 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 it shows. There's something so unsatisfied here, and I think that's the section that I was referring to when I said this was sort of brilliant uh, single material. And this, this, this kind of chorus... Uh, it captures the kind of thing that should be at the top of the charts, top of the rock charts, as far as I'm concerned. If you don't see the whole song that way, I'll make that concession and I'll 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 agree. It's that's debatable. Everything's debatable. That's yes, why I'll we, agree that it's debatable. <laughs> that's why we do this. Yes. Everything. Everything's debatable. Everything is also the name of the of Hello, Hello Goodbyes Goodbye. album, which we reviewed back in episode 68. Thank Check you. it out. That's mostly the only reason I brought it up. So let's so move I on to track that. A. Nothing left. And a clown for your amusement. You are a clown for my amusement. Laugh, clown, laugh. Um, <laughs> I love the contrast here. While previously in Trainwreck we had, I felt it was a little bit jarring, but the the levels of depth and heights that the bass and the drums both do uh, is 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 phenomenal. Well, let's not get ahead of ourselves. The song starts with a vocal intro, which is the first time we're getting this on the record. The singer gets to shine for a few moments on his own, and he does it well. Um, and it really gives you a, an idea of where this kind of song is going to go. It has this kind of dramatic feel, and the music carries way with that once the instruments come in. This, I think, um, may have surpassed white is red as my favorite track on the album um again because i wasn't always looking for them doing something different from their tone i want their tone but i wanted the unified song something that even i just admitted didn't occur on the previous track this is a case where everything just seemed to flow flawlessly i felt like this was just a brilliantly constructed song in terms of how it reveals one thing to the next um Interestingly enough, we're back to G minor here. I find this sort of uh, recurring ter- return to uh, to G minor in this album is sort of your 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 home base. So there's something that felt maybe a little bit more comfortable 
about this track within the context of the album. But then we're also focusing a lot more on melodies here. This is one of those moments where I was just so, so enamored by the inflection that he throws on, on these final dissonances within these varying lyrics, which otherwise are really sparse. Just take a look at him, you know, for... And I know this for sure, there's nothing left for her, no. And I spent it all up, no change left for her cup, no. And I fancy the moon's full, I feel her push and pull, yeah. There's no love lost and none found, I feel her coming round, yeah. It's this interesting, sparse, but impactful melody here that when he throws in that dissonance, it, 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 there's something chilling within this. Again, I appreciate when melodies are broken up like this. It doesn't all have to be content, content, content. I kind of like the inference. I like, I like having to do a little bit of work when it comes to this because, frankly, there's enough said on that one little dissonant end of the phrase than in all of these words. But then when you read into it, it it's just... That's a perfect blend. Well, the change of the emphasis in the lyrics also supports that. Yeah. And they're being supported by my favorite drums on the entire album. Yeah, my uh. notes for this song are the drums are nutty. Um, <laughs> which is a very overly simplistic way to describe They're the exemplary. Yeah. They but, are beautiful. They are. This is my favorite drums. What he does and the combinations of going down from the deep, deep, deep kicked, uh, kick drum... Through his snares, I feel like he's working with twice the number of what I would expect a drummer to be working with. He and sounds possibly, like an octo octopus playing the drums. Yeah, possibly a third, fourth, maybe fifth hand. There's so much going on right here, and he changes on a dime. The back and forth, back and forth, that and the way the guitar parallels him. Because bass. this one, not yeah, I'm going to keep doing it. I don't I care. Know. The way the bass is going to keep doing it. Um... The bass is not in front. The drums are, for me, the main character of what this melody is doing. The bass is just trying its best to support what the drums are trying to state. The interludes for the drums, I will admit, are pretty damn impressive. Although I'm going to continue along with the melodies here because I love them so much. Moving to the chorus itself. Now she's waiting for the now she's waiting for the night to see if everything's all right. So do the hardest things for free, and now there's nothing left for me. Now within this, the falsetto, again, I'm gonna go back to this word chilling. It was absolutely, I, I'm, I'm enamored by the fact that he can sometimes stay in his more eh, uniformed range, generally where he likes to stay. But then in those particular cases, he includes dissonance. When then he goes falsetto, it's just, it, it, it's like this this uncontained passion. You, you, you can't, he can't hold back. I can't hold back from singing along. Everything is just just jiving up at this moment, and that continues into the C section. What train wreck I think was lacking for me, nothing left accomplishes in that chorus. Mm. The, the the issues I had in train wreck are what the chorus here does so much better. The heights it reaches just just in my eyes so much better. It feels more married as well to what they were doing in the verses. Yeah. But, but I think this is a good place to move on to what Steve was saying about the C-section and the bizarre outro that this track has. Mm -hmm. It's just, what I would really like about this band and what they've continued to do is they don't let, either tracks end on a dime or if they wind down, they wind down in the strangest and most oddest ways. If they're absolutely and completely unraveling, like a tape spinning out almost. It's their way of sort of... I, 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 again, again, I kind of want to say this is 
another band that uses snapshot material, where they're trying to give you a particular emotion and just sort of leave you with that. It's, it, it's not always trying to take you on a story. Granted, I said that in some of these tracks, but the vast majority of these, they're just trying to rev you up, or more so than that, just put you at the top immediately, plateau you throughout, and then just wonder how the hell you got there in the first place. And I think that's kind of what this C section does, because frankly, it called my bluff when I thought that that the chorus was the best uh, was the best example of their lyrics here. When he reaches up to that falsetto, this was phenomenal. He meanders around the scale within the course of this phrase, which is actually rather long for a singular melody. It's it seems as if it has no end, like it's just free form. But of course, it's extremely well written. It's extremely tight, and. Uh, <laughs> It's almost as if within these, within this meandering around the scale here, it's like it's searching for meaning. Yeah, and that really is, a, I think, the greatest way to have wrapped up this track. I don't think they could have ended it any other way. Fortunately, from this track, we go to a point where I think the album starts to take a little bit of a dip. So we're moving on to track nine, which is Government Trash. And this is the first true punk-sounding song that we really get. Um, in instrumentation, and in speed, and in structure, it really feels very punk but my problem is instrumentally lyrically inflection vocally it's very straightforward it's not bad by any means but we hit that cliche that we always say it's just it, it it's very familiar it's something we've heard before this is not very unique even for a two-piece band it's called government trash and i think this is the trashiest side of punk <laughs> that's not to say it's trash as in like you know uh utter garbage as far as music is concerned it means to say like a lot of a lot of people refer to punk um the trashier side of punk in a more uh in a more nostalgic sense in a more you know yeah that it, time i got a bloody lip during that mosh pit yeah exactly awesome. exactly it's that brand of 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 punk which perhaps didn't belong in this album as much although again that depends on your interpretation because i flat out said it was very testosterone filled in the beginning so perhaps they felt like they needed this track but let's just say this this album in general i think has moved 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 uh moved mountains from their original album back in 2004 which is still really really fun but it's more in line of this stuff okay. it's it's um it's a little bit grittier but it doesn't always have those chilling moments Instead of chilling moments, they, they're they using a lot of the same pieces that they had in, in the earlier parts of the album, but in, they're not marrying them. They're taking an idea, they're repeating it four times, they're moving on to the next idea, they're repeating it four times. This is a, a combination of, of, of riffs, of melodies, just no flow. There's nothing like... I feel as a through line in everything here. Well, even flow is one of those strange words. I mean, flow is how you take it. If you like the mosh pit flow, then this has got, this has got a great flow. Um, and there's something the about this. I mean, this is strange how much how opposite ends we are in this particular case because, you know, you're coming from more of a punk background. But the funny thing is I feel like I'm coming from more of a this background, whatever this is. It's is still kind of what I loved about them in the beginning. It's still got their tone. I will admit, though, that as far as form goes, this is the least formed on the album. And it's also, even if you don't consider it as form, it's it's got the least, uh, the least frills. Maybe that's yeah, it's, it. It's repetitive. It, it, this is the first time on the whole record where you truly feel like they're getting a little repetitive. I, I think it's like if you pull back, then there's just the singular attitude that drives this. It's the attitude that I still enjoy. It's the attitude that keeps sure. me invested. But... For any other listener who's not looking for that or who needs more, then it's not really offering it. Yeah. I can accept that. And, and it's really the one thing it has going for it. 
And unfortunately, uh, track 10, Gemini, kind of falls into the same trap. It's not as punk-influenced as, as track 9 was, but my biggest problem with Gemini is even though the intro, the intro is very interesting, it's got this weird screeching sound and they're trying to do something a little different, it doesn't really go anywhere from that. That's the thing, though. I think it falls into a different trap entirely, um, which still leaves it probably about the same level as the previous track. Uh, the squeal is something that's not necessarily new to them. They did this on the previous album, as far as I recall. It's this sort of way of just, again, jarring you. But we had moments earlier on this album where we were much more pleasantly jarred. Uh, one of those instances, obviously, was Trainwreck 1979, although then again, John was sort of in between on that. I still enjoyed that, and it mm-hmm. definitely was married in terms of in terms of theme. This particular case, uh, I the love squeal, it. it's an odd signature of theirs, but I'm just not sure if it serves any purpose on this track. That's 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 where I'm really gonna be honing in here. It's it's a great idea what they first introduce and use as the main focus of the verses is a, a great great riff, a great almost melody. Yeah, but they do nothing with it. The entire song. They do nothing to this great idea. I don't even know about the riff itself. The riff itself, I felt, was almost absent. It was just, it was more in line with the eighth notes in this particular track. It wasn't really, wasn't really hitting any marks for me in particular. But I, you know, this, this sort of lacked the same energy as the previous track, which is what I'm trying to get to, is explaining this is a, a sort of a different pitfall, a different trap. And I think it's more the melody itself. This is one of those cases... From a pure artistic standpoint, it just isn't hitting marks. It's not really memorable for me. It's no. not something that I really like. took to the bank. I can barely hear it in my head now. We kind of had this instance last week when we were looking at uh, one of Weezer's bum tracks, one of the ones more from like you know the 50s era kind of thing. Something that's just, you feel the point vaguely, but it's just, it, it's, it's not that memorable song. It's not going to be that effortless anthem. Yeah, it, it just... Not that this is really trying to be. I think that's the problem, is that the song was generic enough that it felt straightforward and wasn't very memorable. It didn't leave an impact, it didn't stay with us, and it's because I think of the structure and the sound. I had one positive thing to say about this track, and that was the, the bridge. The riff that occurred during the bridge was a very impressive pattern. It's one of those things that you, it almost makes you a little bit sad to sort of take this from a, from a reviewing or critical standpoint to look back and say, wow, that was, that was unbelievable. At the same time, didn't make an impact on me. Didn't do anything and else. That's, yeah. that's always painful to say, especially for anyone who like work really hard on the riff. And believe me, at every other moment in this album, they've <laughs> they've hit that mark. It's just in this particular case, I I'm gonna call the ineffable. I don't often do this when it comes to music, but uh, when it comes to our reviews, where we try to break things down logically, but in this particular case, I am calling the ineffable. This this just doesn't got the it. Yeah, I agree. I don't really have much else to say. Got anything to say on lyrics here? Because they're interesting. The really long chorus, because it's a two, another two-part chorus, though musically it's not as diverse as we've gotten in the past. Everything is pretty segmented in this track, though. Yeah, it's... Not really It was long. It was interesting once, but it jumps off rails. I, I, I would have loved the story that inspired this song. As opposed to the lyrics of this song. I guess that's what it boils down to. There's something deep and dark that they're talking about here. But it doesn't go anywhere. It doesn't do anything in this case. I kind of want to see the Snow White horror story that might have been here. 
My girl is a Gemini, she gets things done. Sometimes she's mean, but she can be a lot of fun. She cries on her birthday, no it's not the first time. Yeah, she cries on her birthday, no it's not the first time. Her blood-stained walls, stepped on and forgotten, cut from the film, cut from her wrists. 24-7 still believes in heaven, raspberry lips, never been kissed. I actually think it's pretty strong poetry. It's just a shame that I don't see in any sense how it really how it really connects with the music. And those lyrics, I don't remember. I don't remember at all. Like, you reading them, it's like I'm hearing them for the first time. So I think that's, that's I think, the strongest advocate for how little impact the song leaves. When and you're reading lyrics to me that I don't remember ever hearing, but I know I did, that's that's the real love. I've often said song. this when it comes down to when it comes down to music is uh, let's face it when you're talking about the art form here it's music when you're talking about rock and roll you were talking about music with lyrics in many of these cases you need to make each one serve the other in almost every single capacity if you think you can just write music around your story and not really put too much effort in that music well meh then that's a fundamental flaw. It doesn't matter how good your story is. Same goes in the opposite way around. If your lyrics are just there for the sake of being there, but your music is superb, I mean, frankly, as a musician, I'm more inclined toward that realm, but <laughs> I've often proven wrong in this case where, where people, you know, take the lyrics and they read it, it's just like, ugh, that, that doesn't really say anything. <laughs> and it's kind of like, that goes along with that otherwise awesome riff that I was just jamming out to. That's kind of a downer. It sort of puts a... Puts puts a nail in the coffin of of uh, of this thing that I had previously enjoyed. So that's the breaks when it comes to music. Focus on both. <laughs> thankfully, focus on the full art form. Thankfully, we get rescued at the end here. So the final track on the album is the title track, "The Physical World," and already from the beginning, we're getting something different. We have a very strong keyboard intro that's very theatrical in nature. That's really engrossing from the moment it starts. It's like this whole techno intro up unto itself and it serves as as an exposition um and within this oh boy i I could go to town and just breaking this down it's 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 extremely complex stuff almost overly complex for the song itself because the song proceeds to go in a wildly different direction but just to take this part for the fun of it the here it it is in 4-4 quite deceptively so because the accents and the target notes of the of this of this particular um riff if we're calling it is just it's so deceptive. It, it meanders around, and the target notes are not always where you expect them to be, but if you follow it up, this isn't 4-4. This is straight on. It's just playing around with the middle area so much. But after that, full-blown metal. Yeah, and what I think is so interesting is that it goes from that techno into the speed metal sound. It's like it's if not Daft, just... Daft Punk and Metallica had a baby, almost. It, it, it wasn't even yep. speed metal. Like, at points, it felt apocalyptic. <laughs> just the back and forth of it and this was coupled with the words which are just all over the place this is probably the most pointed writing on the entire album only because they decided not to try to do full sentences they decided to actually just emote these words which I think actually fit the vocals better than anything else on the album go bridge one has strung out build up tear it down Sunburn, walk it out, look in my. That right there, that phrase, when you actually put it in context, because it, it's nonsensical, when you put it in context with the vocals and the supporting instrumentation, is, is amazing how much emotion it conveys. 
I'm, I'm not gonna lie. This mm. sound, this techno rock sound, or even the speed, the speed metal parts that the techno takes a step back on. This is what I wanted from New Judas Priest or some of the other new metal records we listen to. Like this bass work is incredible, and it really gives you that headbanging metal feel. It's kind of mind blowing because I mean we got hints of this on the record, and there were moments of it, but this is where they go balls to the wall. Amidst I'm, that, amidst the apocalyptic tone here, it's very twisted. It's disturbed. It's uh, they they pretend they pretend <laughs> to have a rising, falling nature to the sound, and yet all of a sudden we're getting those peaks and valley work that that halting up and down. But it's so much more stutter step. It's so much more uh, just across the board that uh, it's 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 phenomenal. And that's not the whole song. That's that's forget the synth, forget everything that was done in this. It then goes into a slow break that rebuilds and goes into that full-fledged monstrous outro riff. But also the thing about this song that's really fascinating is that as far as conclusionary tracks go for wrapping up an album, what I really like is there was a sense of urgency on this whole record, but clearly it wasn't urgent enough because they kick it into high gear in the final track. The sense of urgency is almost painfully aggressive at this point. And, yeah. and it's like they're racing towards the end. Whatever that end is, whatever the means is, they're racing towards it at this point. This also sort of culminates in a point where I don't think we're just getting snapshots, but we might be getting a semi-morality play, if, if, if you follow. But it's, it's, it's abstract. Still, these are some of the more evocative lyrics, I think. I can, tr I can help you if you don't try. Staring at nothing, nothing is right. Can I say something? That might sound wrong. Maybe we've been too free too long. But particularly, I am, I am uh, fascinated by this. Maybe we've been too free too long. I think this is one of the lines that I think really gets it's, me, it's, just in terms of that, that single one-shot simple makes you think. Yeah. But it, it's not even, it's the phrasing as well. Maybe we've been too free too long. Exactly. That pause in between too free, that was just... It, it's pacing. It's using nonsense. Even if you're saying, it, it's just it's an amazing combination. It's saying something without saying something. Exactly. Or it's, it's not saying something while saying something. Which is it, it, it's amazing how they use a pause, that outro riff, and then that phonograph creep noise. So the final, so the end of the track, the way the track wraps mm -hmm. up. It, it turns on the creep factor. It's got a, oh, what sounds like almost an old phonograph playing, but it uh, does along something. Along with the drums and bass, the, the phonograph comes in in this outro. And But what's really interesting is it does something that an album doesn't really hasn't really done recently that I listened to. It ends on a jump scare. What's a jump scare? A jump scare is a sudden sound that makes you jump, and it literally record sounds like it's playing scratch loud noise it's it almost resembles a scream but it's not and it, and then it ends on a dime like that sudden noise and then it ends and it's that makes it feel final but it definitely doesn't feel resolved and i think that's what i really nope. like is that they leave you on this open-ended what I want the next album. I want what the physical world is going to lead into. Yeah, I yeah. hope this band does not take another 10 years. Um, and if they do, uh, let's hope that we're both, well, all three of us are still around doing this. Unless anybody has anything else to add, I will go into wrap-up. Uh, don't see why not. Go for it. First time I heard this album, didn't dig it. I guess that's the best way to put it. Uh, 
it, 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 it was a little bit hard to just really like dip your toe into and get into this album. On a second and third subsequent listens, it definitely grew on me. That being said, a lot of my complaints are, are, are kind of across the board. There are instances where the, the album just, it, it, it seems to progress. Just two instruments doing, dueling with one another, fighting with one another, yet completely complementing. And there's such downturns where I feel like they find an idea and they run with it. And then they find the next idea and they run with it. But they don't really do anything to these ideas that I that I saw them do in other instances. It, it seems to be less uniform that way, and, and that hurts it a little bit. There's also three, four songs that I'm not just not really into. They, they, they're lackluster across the board. Government Trash and Gemini just really aren't there for me. Crystal Ball has has that that chorus that really hurts it for me there's, there's well, weezer had holes as well i mean yeah i know they, you know, they it had the same sort of holes but i speak just going back to weezer it it had less holes for me but at the same time here there's a lot more instruments there's a lot more just skill involved the technicality here is just phenomenal interestingly there are lesser instruments here well no i mean more, yeah no i follow you the presence of the instruments are just so much more here yeah um but at the same time that makes it a little bit less approachable which was one of the big factors that made weezer so good so it's it's a back and forth and i'm not going to compare this to weezer i can't compare this to weezer i'm going to go back to goldfrap goldfrap was an album what no, no, no. i'm going to go back to goldfrap <laughs> Episode 64, Tales of Us, check it out. I thought it was great Can't instrumentally and really didn't like the album. Here, I think it's better instrumentally. And I like the album a lot more. Hmm. But what they did in Physical World, I want them to do. Like That's my stipulation. If they're going to make more music, they have to really... I want that synth work. That was so great for that song. I kind of want that third missing member there. Even if it's just pre-recorded loops they do during their shows. I, I, I really want a heavier reference there because they did beautiful things with it out of left field. So this this is a 4-5. It's not... Same thing you get, Weezer. Interesting. Yeah. but We're not comparing to Weezer. <laughs> no, no, I'm not comparing it to Weezer. No. But it, it's a solid 4-5. I don't think they're breaking ground here, which is, you know, that my upper echelon stuff. But it, this is definitely well above the, the herd. Well, well above the herd. Even better than a lot of the good. I'm honestly surprised you rated that high. Your review, your wrap-up didn't support that high of a rating, so that kind it's, of blew me away. The, the things you guys said are undeniable. I was just trying to point out the flaws I found. Gotcha. That's all I could really do. Okay. For me, this record, I mean, uh, let's be... Candid? Is candid? Candid is the word you're looking for. I f***ing love this record. (laughs) Hey. Um, That's candid. The the thing about that is... uh, I was really grateful that two weeks in a row, we get some really solid rock records. I haven't really had a lot lot of luck with rock records lately. There are bands that I have been listening to that I like. I mean, I interviewed Hugo of Tantric, and I'm really into their stuff. But their stuff leans more towards the media, and they do some interesting stuff, and he's a really... Um, prophetic um, 
songwriter, but you know, it's a lot of acoustic work and a lot of rock and roll work. This is something so interesting that two instruments, mostly, with some help from the keyboard, do so freaking much. I mean, John said a lot, and I'm sure Steve's gonna go into an even more intensely detailed description, but, but. You don't know me, man. I do know you pretty well. Yeah, you do. But. He does. But what um, I really like about this band is that they just, there's this bass level of rock with a build of metal and indie that is kind of this blob of rock and roll that I really was looking for. And like, I found myself when we were sitting during the group listen together, headbanging. I haven't really done that in a while. Like, I really got into it. The rhythm, the driving rhythm, the driving bass, you just can't ignore it. It's almost hypnotic. And I really loved it. I mean, the only low point for me were two tracks on this record. Government Trash and Gemini, I just, eh, they were okay. They're, they're, they're that cliche description of okay that we give on this podcast time and time again. They were by no means bad. They were good, but they weren't great. Um, you know, which I'm getting tired of saying so I won't talk about that anymore I'll talk about the highlights the physical world the conclusion to this album is unbelievably fantastic one of the best conclusion tracks I think we've heard all year it's just and it's the longest track on the record and it just goes through these movements and that ending that creep I don't do well with jump scares I'm kind of a coward when it comes to that kind of stuff but I really liked it I like that kind of note it left me on like what what huh what it, it, it really kind of conveyed a strong emotion in an absolute split-second instance. That's freaking huge. So, that said, the only reason I think John rated it a little high is because it's, this album's kind of existing where I am. It's by no means a perfect record. There are flaws. There are moments where it does become repetitive. But it is by no means anywhere near some of the trash we reviewed all year. So, for me, it's a solid 4.6 little bit above a 4.5 they're doing some industry influencing awesome stuff with just two instruments but it's not a five there are still flaws they're not at perfection yet but that's no by mean by no means a bad review 4.6 solid for me i think this uh wrap up of mine is going to prove that uh number one you know me and you don't know me no that's, that's number one and two no, that's no, that's everything actually. Uh, um, what I mean by that is I'm going to give a rather succinct succinct wrap up, not a long, complex one, because I love this album for all of the same simple reasons that you just mentioned. This is a head banging album for me too, and I can't like sum up it up any better. I cannot wait to take this album and drive over the speed limit to it, and maybe get myself in an accident and say, "Hey, I lived," because that was fun. This is the kind of album for me. This is kind of what, you know, I, I guess I did as of the time that their first album was out. And frankly, I find that they're, they're picking up right where they left off and they're offering even more than what they initially had. And they're, it's, it, it doesn't even matter that they're entering in a decade later because it's not like there's been a lot of headway with this particular sound. There's just been them. No one followed through with this or tried to further this sound or do it better than they did or... or or anything to that fact, it's, there's only them. They just hung up a sound that was wildly unique, and they picked it up again, which is awesome, and I can't wait to hear more. I want this sound to get even more and more refined. Um, 
And that brings me into my rating, which, uh, no joke, I had planned 4.6 before you even said it for that exact same reason. This is just slightly above that great factor. And I unfortunately am going to just bring this back to one little um, post-Weezer comparison. Not that it's terribly uh, appropriate, but maybe only for that whole, like, somewhere in the distance is the roots of punk kind of thing. But the fact of the matter is, I just can't rock out to that Weezer album in the same exact way. I think they have tighter melodies, but I think this album is proving that I'm looking for this more than I'm looking for tighter melodies. I'm looking for something that I can have a lot of fun to and not just say, ah, that was a great piece. This is throwing me on several different acid trips in a row, and I think that is probably leaving the better, the bigger impact on me in the end, as opposed to the fully formed pop structure. So, in such the same way, I don't care as much about government trash. It's still kind of even fun in the way that I rocked out to it back then. There are holes. There are bound to be holes. That's what the remaining point four is for. As, as Clean up the holes and you'd be closer to a five. <laughs> as, as an individual who has used recreational psychotropic drugs, um, I definitely get the acid. I definitely get a little bit of the acid going on there. Yeah. yeah, and it's not even like the same kind level of acid, really. Frankly, it's just fun fun. This is what this album is for. This is what it's going not the to band. do. This is why Obviously I would promote it. He didn't put a period at the end. That's yes. right, no period. They have uh, a period. Um, we have to get worse albums because we're getting a lot of really good latecomers this yeah, year. Yeah, our life is hard. Well, we'll find out as as of the year in review how these are really. Who knows? We're we're prone to being smitten, or perhaps overly smitten. Yes. We'll find out at the year in review as to whether these are too high, too low, or whatever. All right. I also want to say that I don't think that the year in review has to be a five. I feel like we've given fives. I mean, and and. It logically would make sense for a year in review to be a five, but honestly, you might give the album of the year to the album that you had the most fun with, even if it's not the best made record. We had categories for that anyway yeah, yeah. in the year in review and all of its multiple categories, which we make up as we go along, because it's awesome. Um, I do want to take a few moments at the end of this podcast to talk a bit about why I rated this album so high. The reason I rated it so high, among many others, is because this is two people creating fuller sounding music than eight P I've heard eight piece bands make. That's wholly within my reasons as well. I just felt like we said it enough, but yes. no, I want your I want your take here. And so what interests me is we've talked about the one man band before on this and how it's interesting how in post people like Trent Reznor and the guy who's behind abandoned pools whose name is escaping me do this post work that really make a full band. Tommy Waters, I believe. Tom yes. And it it's, it's remarkable, but this, it's two band members playing multiple instruments, a drummer who sings for F's sake. Um, speaking of which, if you tune into our Shape of the Dark Lord episode, he actually accuses me for snooping through his diary because I ask him if he intends to play drums while singing someday because he's a drummer as well. Um, so clearly others have thought of it. Um, it's, it's kind of amazing to me that they can do so much with so little. And it's not a one-man band. A one-man band, he gets the opportunity to do a lot of post-production. Doing this sort of concept, whether it's one, two, three, however many people, but when you're forced to only use one or two instruments in a live setting, in a situation where you're playing them, not using a lot of reliance upon synthesizers or anything like that, but being forced to only work with just your two hands and your lungs mm. and not 
quote, having enough. You can get some very interesting things. It's It, it means that you, it, it can be great, it can be terrible. Because in this case, in, in Death From Above, 1979, the bass was doing double duty so much of the time. The drums were doing double duty so much of the time. And that seemed to supplement what a lot of people would say, well, there's no guitar, there's no whatever, we need something more. And I'm... Sometimes you do need something more, but here, maybe even not even compensating. They just, the roles were unnecessary. In many ways, I think it goes back to the uh, the brash testosterone that I advertised about this band in the beginning, because there's something rather, rather brazen about stepping up there with just just minimal components and then blowing everybody else out of the water there is definitely a level that i think we sometimes overlook because it's not too nice to talk about but a level of competition that sometimes is present within music the fact that i'm better than you and everyone in as a musician not everyone is so altruistic with this not everyone just gets up there to say i'm here to make the best song i can make i've heard many musicians say this and it's certainly a wide component but sometimes people practice for hours and hours and hours to be the best they can be and that's kind of present within this particular album it's present in what they do it's present in what many other people do i mean just as far as a an example here which i think uh is sort of the the culminating uh example to to this this particular topic you know when you're doing a lot with so little the piano player is obviously you know somewhere at the top of that list as a piano player i strive for these things you know perhaps i'm above some people here but you know it's, when you're talking about vladimir horowitz uh, arthur rubinstein th these are unwielding uh virtuosos that every musician strives to be because essentially you're dealing with just 10 fingers and, and that's it. You don't have any other musician to back you up. You don't have any other ideas to back you up except yourself and ten fingers and hoping that you can capture all these harmonies that in many ways, uh, for a, a, a huge dose of, of classical music and jazz music alike, are more dense than anything that would come up in, in anything remotely pop-oriented. So that itself is a level of competition. It's a slap in the face to people who, you know try just to make something nice that's not really much to say and then there's also on the flip side though when you really just don't go the route of trying to accomplish more with less is the white stripes and i do love a lot of their music but for the most part nothing even comes close to this and that's because well they take the bass and they have it as the quote typical bass and they have tip they have the drums and they have a quote typical drums and they don't really do anything to try to expand upon that they there's very little that actually tries to breach the idea of we don't need anything else well they're the perfect example that they i mean they kind of prove that they're the counter example they they get the a for effort <laughs> they try see that's the thing that proves that in many cases there are glaring holes when you try to attempt something like this because without a sufficient um a sufficient song in mind that really highlights your few instruments in the best manner possible, then all you have is just, you know, exactly what people would expect you to be, a drummer and a bassist. But where's the transcendental line? Clearly we've reached something here in this case, and 
I'm with you. I like the right stripes. I like them for what they did. But it is true, and I think uh, Matt said this uh, off air right beforehand that you know this is like a tighter version of the white stripes, a sort of um, using somewhat of the same components, but it's just there's more thought put into this at, at, at times. I think ultimately why I wanted to talk about this and bring this up, because this isn't a long-form topic by any means. I mean, we're more or less touting this format and what you can do with it. But I think the reason it's important to bring up is... Probably impossible, I think, is what we're trying to say. Yes. I, I think that we've been too nice on some of these bands, and I'm guilty of it too. I think that what this band has proven to me is that you are capable and when your band like and I'm going to put them on blast even though I'm a huge fan of them and hopefully maybe they'll hear this and feel bad and wake up but the Bare Naked Ladies are a band capable of a lot of really good and interesting things they've put out albums for years they, they're great at comedic timing in their records they're great at lyrics they're great at, they're really good songwriters but they put out an album this year that was horribly disappointing because it was so safe and they have, they have a dedicated keyboardist who also plays saxophone, plays other instruments. It's like they have the talent to do it. There's no shortage of that. That was last year already. That was a 2013 album. Wow. Grinning Streak, episode 53. Check it out. The, the problem with that is you have so many components and you can't even attempt what these two musicians excel at. You know, and it's aggravating me. Green Day, a band with clearly talent, they've played for years and years and years. And they fall so short on their recent works, whereas this band with two instruments can do so much more. And I think that's why I rated them so highly also, is they're, they're as musicians, are taking musicianship to the next level. And I think that's what's really important. One of the bands I almost, I almost brought on, except they haven't produced anything new, I'm forgetting their name, but I know I sent Steve a link, so I'm going to look at my email. Um, it was a duo. Brothers. One was on the drums, one was playing the uh, keyboard. And he wasn't even playing the keyboard. He was pressing a few buttons and completely mixing it on the fly over his brother's work. Phenomenal stuff. Chemical Brothers? Yes. Oh, yeah. I know yeah. Chemical okay. Brothers. Yeah, yeah. yeah. We, t- we had a little bit of a discussion. This was over a year ago. Yeah. They haven't done anything new, and they were, they were a group I wanted to bring on because they do the same exact thing as what's here. They have two ideas, and they just work with those ideas. One has has drums, the other has keyboard, and they just do everything they can do with those two instruments. The big issue is you have to know your instrument. You have to know what its capabilities are. Not just your capabilities, but what that piece that you're holding in your hand or is sitting in front of you or may just exist in your throat, what it can do. And it's not even just that, because even with less instruments, you can do more because there's a technical aspect that you can look into, like with looping. Um, there's an uh, artist local to Brooklyn who I've seen at the Waystation several times named Eric Vitoff. He does exactly what Reggie Watts does, but with a guitar. He has a loop machine and a guitar, and we call him the one-man Daft Punk because he actually covers <laughs> Daft, some Daft Punk songs as well as has some originals, yeah. but he does them all and creates all of the layers of the structure in our Daft Punk song using a guitar. I'm even glad that you brought up Reggie Watts just because he's the perfect example also as just a solo guy who can blow other people out of the water with just his little loop machine and his uh, strikingly unique vocals, which can uh, broach three different accents. It's just one of those things where you really look at certain artists and they really bring to light what we are capable of as an artistic community and that's not to say there isn't a place for music that like pop and other stuff i just feel like 
those people should try harder. <laughs> I agreed. Well said. And one final note, one thing I wanted to bring up is that, no, for me, one final note because Steve's giving me dirty looks. That when you have one or two or three instruments, you can make them sing in ways that you can't when there's more competition going on there. You don't have to worry about levels or anything like that. When it's just a guitar, you hear the guitar. And that's the voice you're speaking with. And there's something with a soloist or a duet that it just becomes magical when you can actually hear that single idea or that single instrument really becoming not just the focal point, but becoming like itself. Mm. Well, I, I mean, even just with what you said, I, I do agree there's a... Um there's sort of a hierarchy in terms of just, just just leveling and complexity that sometimes people are, are sort of seeking this overcomplication of their work where, oh, clearly the more people involved, well, the better it will be. A lot of times all you're creating is this, this social web where one idea will falter with respect to another and people will fail to sort of live up to this ultimate potential because everyone has their own artistic vision and a lot of times that's just going to clash. This is another reason why, for instance, you know, on the grandest scale possible, the orchestral scale, people struggle to come up with these life-changing, you know, century-encompassing pieces which just don't always happen. They're so rare as far as, because it's, it's, it's too it's too many factors. Too many things can go wrong in the course of these pieces. Even some of my favorite symphonies, I can still say, I'll skip a movement, you know, because it just doesn't reach the long. same. It was going to be really know, long. Beethoven has his best movements. Everyone has that phrase he knows from Beethoven. Even some of those moments, there's things that just don't always quite jive. This is a very challenging thing. And I just want to give one more point on, on the opposite end, and that is, well, talking about the, the massive complexity, uh many people involved let's go down to that one person involved again i will even say that as as um as interesting as it is especially for just one person to control their vision and and even strive to outdo the the collaborators outdo the best in in those categories sometimes there's more to be said for the duo the people who are right there in the middle of it, not necessarily a band, certainly not like this, you know, massive collaborating orchestra or the single soloist period, just the duo, because it, it, it at that point you're talking about things like fate. The fact that two people will completely line up on their artistic vision and because they are a, a dual personality here, they have much more a chance of communicating their vision to each other than it would be if it were a group where all of a sudden that communication starts to break down, wherein you get the life-changing collaborators such as Lennon and McCartney, and in perhaps these guys. And that's why a lot of times when we talk about Green Day, we talk about Billy's idea, or we talk about Weezer, we we're mentioning rivers specifically exactly. in many ways they're more like the composers as the composer to the or orchestra you know it's more like well hand off your work and then hope that it jives in the end but the funny thing is it doesn't always work because that's the sort of uh the the thing i'll leave on this album for today is that uh these guys they did have artistic differences that's what led to their their decade-long hiatus uh, and the funny thing is it's not like they worked together for years and years and years i believe they met at a sonic youth concert just to, again, sort of throw in the fate. They met us on a youth concert, they came up with this. I think what we're trying to say, really, internet and artists out there, is work harder. 
Um, but yep, <laughs> actually, no, that's that's pretty much. Yeah, let's go yeah. back to that point. That was interesting. But, but no, honestly, in, in summation and wrapping up, find a band that really inspires you to do more. If if I were a drummer or a bassist and I heard this album, I'd be writing for the rest of the night. I would absolutely be trying to do what this is or get near it or even touch it. Reach out for it. It's inspiring. So which is why I meet me to say fate before is really only, you know, that's only how important you take it. You have control over your work, and you can try to find the best collaborators out there. Um, not everybody could be so lucky to stumble upon that person at a Sonic Youth concert, but do your work or network. Yes. Um, I think this is a great point to wrap this up with a neat little bow and move on to our spam of the week. Um, we did have some emails and, and, and other things come in, but you know, let's go back to the fun making fun of the computer part. Yeah, that thing we do. I read this piece of writing fully regarding the comparison of latest and preceding technologies. It's awesome article. It's awesome article? It's awesome article. Wait, the latest and preceding technologies? The latest and preceding technologies. But we're not a tech site. Do they know that? Well, I, I thought for a minute that maybe we could have like talked about a topic that was, you know, technology and music, as we do very often. From time to time. Well, it was on uh, Crest Coast Podcast 103. Huh? You think maybe still there's a chance? No, what was that one about? Bated breath. We talked about vocalists. Yeah. The most non-technological component. In fact, that possible. is that is that is as natural as it can actually get. Yep. Anyway, that was by Funny Pipe. Thanks, Funny, Funny Pipe. Pipe. Um, it's we... the funniest part of the whole thing. <laughs> Funny Pipe, as opposed to an unfunny pipe. Um, <laughs> <laughs> moving on to next week's record. It's my choice again, and I've got a doozy. Um, one of my favorite indie bands of the last decade. They do such fun things with music videos, and they have a brand new record out. It was one of the first written reviews and written interviews I had done for the site. I interviewed their drummer, Dan, um, and reviewed their last album. But now we're reviewing their current album, OK Go, and their album, Hungry Ghosts. Um, I've already heard the first single and saw the video. They do some impressive unicycle riding and umbrella work. Um, this is this always is, what you're looking for when you go to bands. This uh, is his Weezer, uh, more or less. I mean, there are bands that go back further, but I really enjoy these guys. They have had three very solid records so far, and the fourth one I'm hoping to be as good. Um, we will take them on next time. Um, I think I mentioned last week, but in case I didn't, Circadian Clock is our guest this month. We're going to have as many members of the band as we can cram into our studio space. Um, that's it, unless anybody else has some closing points they'd like to make. Only one. What? We're doing another album with the word ghost in it. Episode 99, Carbon Leafs, Ghost Dragon Text Castle. Episode 103, which is incidentally the one that this particular spam is referring to, uh, Coldplay, Ghost Stories. And now here we go again. What's with ghosts? What's with ghosts? Stop you know with the ghosts. For like For like weeks, we've been doing all these albums with musicians, and that's just getting creepy. Wow, John. On that note, music is life. And, and life, life is good. good.